Let me invite you all to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of 1 John. The book of 1 John this morning, we are continuing in our series of messages, walking through this uh, short but powerful little letter written by the Apostle John. And I will just remind you as we begin this morning that at the time of this writing, uh, John is well into his old age. Scholars predict that he is roughly 90 years old. Regardless of the precise number, he is clearly in his final lap of life. And so as we read this letter, it becomes abundantly clear to us that he is wanting to spend his final days here on earth with purpose and with vigor and with intentionality. He is wanting to make these final years count. He is wanting to leave a legacy of faithfulness behind him for the next generation that will follow in his footsteps. He has learned to number his days, as the psalmist put it, and with that he has received a heart of wisdom. And so in this letter, he takes up his pen and he writes to a group of younger Christians who at this time were in desperate need of some pastoral encouragement. They were in need of a voice of reason and truth in a climate that had become so filled, so bloated with doubt and uncertainty and skepticism concerning the core tenets of their faith. And so it's fitting, really, that we would be studying this letter together this morning, because here we are living in America in the year 2023, and we realize that the culture that we are living in today is not too unlike the one that the original recipients of John's letter were living in in the first century A.D. And so as John writes to encourage them, it really is no surprise to us that we continually find that we ourselves are strengthened and built up and encouraged in our faith as well as we make our way through this letter. And so with that context before us, let me invite you, if you're able to, to stand with me as I read our passage aloud this morning and ask for God's blessing on our time together. This morning, we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 3, and we're going to be making our way down through verse 14. So that is 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through verse 14. This is what the Apostle John writes, starting in verse 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him, there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Father, as we look into your word this morning, I pray that you would open up the eyes of our hearts so that we would behold wonderful things. And Lord, I ask that you would stoke the fire of our affections this morning so that we would go out into the world to do the work of your will. It's in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we pray. Amen. You all may be seated. 
Well, if you're taking notes this morning, or if you are pretending to take notes, then the title I have given to our message is The Birthmarks of the Believer. The Birthmarks of the Believer. It is likely no secret to anyone here this morning that we live in a culture today that is growing increasingly hostile and opposed to really any claims of absolute truth or objective knowledge. That is probably old news to most of you here this morning. Flip on the TV for five minutes, scroll through really any social media thread, and this will become readily apparent to you. It seems that more and more to claim to know anything for certain is nowadays being interpreted as a direct insult upon anyone and everyone who does not believe the same thing that you do and see things the same way that you do. And because of this, as our world continues to drift in this direction, it really should not surprise us that things like doubt and uncertainty are more and more becoming virtues to pursue rather than dangers to avoid. Unfortunately, this really is the sad reality of our social climate today. However, what I think might be perhaps less obvious to us this morning is that this metaphoric pot of uncertainty and doubt has actually been boiling for much longer than many of us here may realize. Let me give you a few quotes just to illustrate this point. Roughly 100 years ago, the brilliant scientist Albert Einstein famously said that the only thing we can be certain of in this life is that we can be certain of nothing. He looks at you and he says, look, the only thing that you can be certain of in your life is that you can actually be certain of nothing. Well, thanks, Einstein. That's very encouraging. Turn the clock back another hundred years before that, in the late 1700s, and we find Benjamin Franklin, one of the greatest intellectuals of his day, writing this famous quote in a letter to a friend of his just a decade after the American Revolutionary War. Many of you have heard this. He says, Our new constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and death and taxes. Now, it's probably not surprising for us to hear quotes like these from men who were admittedly non-Christians, men who rejected outright the authority of Scripture and its binding and bearing upon their lives. However, it's important for us to realize this morning that this theme of uncertainty and the propensity to doubt any claims of absolute truth is not restricted only to those outside of the church, but it's actually already begun to creep itself into the minds of many inside the church as well. In 2009, one of America's most well-known celebrity pastors appeared on the Larry King live show to be interviewed regarding his views on the Christian faith. During this interview, there was a two-minute interchange between this pastor and Larry King that was absolutely shocking and disheartening, really, for Christian viewers who watched this pastor cower and buckle before the direct question leveraged at him about his faith by Larry King. Indeed, in an effort to be culturally sensitive, he rendered himself evangelistically defective. Let me read you just a portion of this transcript so that you can get a glimpse for yourself of the danger of this kind of relativism and subjectivism as it makes its way into the church. King to this pastor. We've had ministers on who said, your record don't count. You either believe in Christ or you don't. If you believe in Christ, you are going to heaven. And if you don't, no matter what you've done in your life, you ain't. This pastor's reply, yeah, I don't know. There's probably a balance between, I believe you have to know Christ, but I think that if you know Christ, if you're a believer in God, you're going to have some good works. I think it's a cop-out to say I'm a Christian, but I don't ever do anything. King, what if you're Jewish or Muslim? You don't accept Christ at all. This pastor. You know, I'm very careful about saying who would and who wouldn't go to heaven. I don't know. King, if you believe you have to believe in Christ, they're wrong, aren't they? 
this pastor. Well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe, but I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. <clears throat> I spent a lot of time in India with my father. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God. And I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. In the presence of a watching and dying world without Jesus Christ, <clears throat> on national television, the only answer this pastor could seem to give for his faith were these three sad words, I don't know. Friends, let me tell you this morning that the message of the Bible is not I don't know, but is according to 1 John chapter 2, verse 3, by this we know. Not we guess, not we hope, not we think, not we predict, not we presume, but by this we know. Friends, God has not left your salvation up to reign of chance. He has not left it up to an educated guess. You will not stand before the King of Heaven one day and flip a coin to determine the eternal outcome of your future. No, God has laid down in his word certain undeniable, clear marks by which you can know if you really have come to know him. These truths are what I want us to devote our time to studying this morning. I've labeled the message the birthmarks of the believer because in a very real sense, when you were born again, you received not only a new life and a new nature, but with that new life and new nature, you have also received new spiritual birthmarks that now bear upon your soul that identify you with all of those who are truly children of God. And so these three marks are what I want us to look at this morning as we walk through these 11 verses. And so beginning with point number one there on your outline, the first spiritual birthmark that the Apostle John sets before us in this passage is the mark of obedience to Jesus' commands. Obedience to Jesus' commands. Take your Bible and look back with me starting in verse 3. And I want you to notice how John begins here. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Now let's just stop right there. Please note the precise language that John uses here. He does not say, and by this we know that we have come to know about him. He says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. Right out of the gate, John reminds us that the Christian faith is not knowing about God. It is knowing God himself. Discipleship, friends, let me remind us all, is not the process of mastering our Bibles over the course of 50 years. Discipleship is the process of being mastered by the God of the Bible each and every single day of our life. It is somewhat embarrassing for me to admit this, but it's true, that for the vast majority of my Christian life, I had long equated godliness with knowledge of the Bible, rather than equating godliness with an intimate knowledge of Jesus Christ, my Lord and Savior. I had fallen into the age-old trap that many others have throughout the centuries, of thinking that the more I knew, the holier I was. I had completely overlooked the fact that knowledge apart from relationship is utterly useless. You see, if becoming a Christian was merely a matter of knowing our Bibles, we would not have needed Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. But since becoming a Christian is a matter of knowing the Father and the mystery of the gospel revealed to us, well, then we were all in desperate need of a mediator to die in our place. And that's why Jesus Christ came to the earth. I wonder if some of you here have found yourself falling into this self-same trap. How easy it is for us to become so consumed with studying the intricate details of the Bible that all along we completely miss the person that those intricate details are pointing us to. I've said this before, but it's worth repeating at this point, that the goal of your Christian life, the goal of my Christian life, is not to fall in love with the Word of God. It is to fall in love with the God of the Word. This is exactly what Jesus said himself. John chapter 17, verse 3, you might mark that down. Now this is eternal life, says our Lord, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You see, eternal life is not knowing the Bible. 
It is not knowing the scriptures frontward and backward. If it were, Nicodemus could have entered in just fine. Eternal life is knowing Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that's why the thief on the cross could enter in and Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so the Apostle John here says, and by this we know that we have come to know him. And then he goes on to lay down the directive. He lays down the test. Look back with me at verses 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if. There's a condition, John says. So we might ask, what's the condition? If we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, notice the contrast here between the Apostle John and the pastor that I made reference to earlier who seemed to have had a case of the I don't knows. John does not leave the question of Christian salvation here up to debate. This is not a subjective matter of mysticism or of feeling or of experience. No, this is an objective test, he says, one by which everyone here may know the true state of their heart. He looks at us in this letter and he says, in effect, do you want to know if you know God? Do you want to know if you are a true Christian? If you are truly saved? Well then, he says, take a look in the mirror and ask yourself these questions. Do I keep his commandments? Do I obey God? Because if you don't, if you say, I know him, but don't do what he says, again, John puts it as plain as can be, you are a liar. You are a liar, John says. Does this seem a little bit harsh here? A bit overboard? A bit extreme? A bit culturally insensitive today? If so, in defense of the Apostle John, let me just remind you that he is not proclaiming anything that his Lord himself did not say. In fact, let me give you a few verses to jot down that come directly from the lips of Jesus Christ, our Savior, concerning the necessity of obedience in the Christian life. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do what I command. Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. John 14, 15, there it is again, that word, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, notice that the emphasis in each of these verses is put upon the doing and not upon the feeling. It is upon the action and not upon the intent. And so this concept of obedience to God's commandments as an indicator of true love and affection for Jesus Christ, it really is a theme repeated all throughout the New Testament. We cannot escape this when we read our Bibles. You cannot escape this when you read your Bibles in the morning. In fact, if forgiveness is tied to Jesus Christ as our Savior, then obedience is necessarily tied to him as our Lord. So when the Apostle John says, and by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments, he is simply standing on the shoulders of the other apostles and of Jesus' teaching himself. He is simply echoing the emphasis made all throughout the Christian scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. Now, before we move on any further, I want us to pause right here and take a good hard look at that word in your Bibles, commandments. In fact, if you're able to, you might even underline it or circle that word as you see it appear, that word commandments, because it's important for us to take note of what exactly it is that John is communicating to us here by this word. You see, commandments are not suggestions. They are not just pieces of advice. These are not God's wishes. These are not God's hopes and dreams. 
This is not God looking at us, putting his hands together and saying, pretty please, with a cherry on top. No, these are commandments. And commandments are meant to be obeyed, not debated. You know, often I think that the temptation for many of us, for myself included, is to treat God's commandments like we treat stop signs. We think that when God says stop, he really just means slow down. We take liberty with what he said. We don't take him seriously at his word. But listen, God's commandments are not opportunities for us to negotiate. God's commandments are opportunities for us to draw a line in the sand to demonstrate our allegiance to the one who has purchased our souls by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. This is what we are doing. This is what you are doing, whether you realize it or not. Every time you obey God, you are making a public proclamation about who it is that your very soul and your life belongs to. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20. For you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You know, often whenever discussion about obedience and keeping God's word is brought up, inevitably there will be somebody who will reject and say that all this teaching is simply legalism. It's a, it's a legalist mindset, these people argue, that would make so much of obedience to God's commandments. Surely God loves us despite our obedience or our intent to do his will. Whenever I hear these objections, I often think of what the late A.W. Tozer once said regarding this subject. He said that the church will be at the height of heresy whenever we call obedience legalism. We, Bloomfield Baptist Church, will be at the height of heresy whenever we call obedience legalism. I, I think he's right. You see, the legalist obeys God out of a desire to earn something from him. But the Christian obeys God knowing that Jesus Christ has already purchased everything for him. The legalist obeys God because he thinks that he has to. But the Christian obeys God primarily because he wants to. It's his desire to obey him. And this we see is why this is considered a test of true saving faith. Obedience is not something the Christian does to earn their salvation. Rather, obedience is the natural response of a person who has already received salvation. Let me pause and ask you guys a question. What would you say a Christian is? How would you define or explain to somebody else what a Christian is? I think that there are many valid ways that we could answer that question. However, I believe that one answer we could give is that the Christian is a person who has received a new heart. God has performed a spiritual heart transplant in their very life, such that the new heart that they have now loves a God they once hated and hates the sin they once loved. And because of this, obedience for the believer is not a burden, but a blessing. Because he knows that the one who has issued the command is not a cruel judge, but a loving father. And as his father, he will never command us, he will never command you to do anything that is not both for your good and for his glory. In his sovereign and providential love and wisdom, he has so tied these two things together that whenever he issues a command for you, it will always promote the agenda of your good and his glory. And so when he asks you to obey, when he asks you to do something, even when it does not make sense, you can trust his heart even when you cannot see his hand. Now, just to qualify what we've been saying, will we do this perfectly? Will we always obey God in every facet of our lives? Of course not. That's why we need chapter 1, verse 8 that we saw earlier in the series where John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. You see, John is not emphasizing the perfection of our lives. Rather, here he is calling attention to the direction of our lives. We will not always obey God. He knows that. We will sin. I will sin. You will stumble. You will trip up. You will make mistakes. And when we do, as Christians, we are called to repent and to confess that sin to the Lord. But the general direction, 
the, the pattern of our life, the direction that we should be moving in, the current that we should be swimming in, it is such that we are obeying God, and as verse 6 puts it, walking as Jesus himself walked. And how did Jesus walk, we might ask? Well, he walked in perfect step with the commandments of God. In fact, the narrow path is really nothing more than the path marked out by our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Well, that's the first spiritual birthmark that John says before us this morning. The believer is one who will be marked by obedience to Jesus' commands. But he does not stop there. He goes on. He continues to develop this picture that he's drawing of the Christian. And so that brings us to the second spiritual birthmark we see in this passage. And for those of you who are watching the clock, I will just let you know that we are going to be moving to the final two marks much more quickly than the first. But these final two marks are no less needful for us to take to pay attention to this morning. And so the second spiritual birthmark, John says, we should find in the true believer is love for Jesus' brothers. Love for Jesus' brothers. As we turn our attention to verses 7 through 11, we notice that with this second spiritual birthmark, John now is really just applying the doctrine that he has just taught us. In other words, he seems to anticipate the question that someone reading this letter might raise in response to all that he has just said. Someone might say, okay, John, well, what might this obedience look like? Help me out here, pastor. Give me a practical example. Help me apply this to my life. Give me a test that I can use to examine whether or not I'm truly obeying God and keeping his commandments. And so that's exactly what we see John do here. He says, all right, do you want to test to see whether or not you're keeping his commands? Whether or not you are truly obeying God? Well, here's one for you. Do you love the people of God? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you have an affection for them? Because what you love and who you love reveals the condition of your heart. Proverbs 27, 19, as water reflects the face, so one's life reflects the heart. As one pastor I read on this verse put it, you can know that you're in the family when you love the brothers and sisters. So look back with me at verse 7, and you'll see this play out. John begins this section of his letter essentially by reminding his readers that in a very real sense, this teaching should not be anything new to them. They shouldn't be surprised by this. He says, look, beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandments is the word that you have heard. And of course, if you've read your Old Testament, then you know exactly what he's talking about here. The command to love your brothers and sisters in the family of God would have been old news for them. I mean, this was not going to be ending up on the front cover of the Palestine press. They've been hearing this teaching since they were little kids. They likely could have recited it to one another in their sleep. In fact, if you're taking notes, you might jot down this passage, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18, there in the margin of your Bible. Because these Jewish Christians would have known this passage like the back of their hand, which says this. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And then, of course, you'll recall that Jesus, when he was challenged to essentially summarize the entirety of the Old Testament law, essentially said that the second greatest commandment in all of Scripture was to love your neighbor as yourself. So, in this sense, John's command here to love your brothers, and of course, in the Greek, the term brothers really includes all the men and women who belong to the family of God. In this sense, this command was nothing new. It was, indeed, an old commandment. Yet, John says, it kind of is new. Verse 8, at the same time, it is a new commandment I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. All right, John, just shoot us straight here. Which one is it? 
Is it an old commandment or is it a new commandment? Like any good father would, he says, well, yes, it's both. Like conversion, the command to love one another is a double-sided coin. It's an old commandment, he says, in the sense that this command to love our brothers and sisters can be traced all the way back to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible in the time of Moses. In that sense, it's an old commandment. However, John says, it's a new commandment in the sense that it has now taken on an entirely new depth. It is, it is new in its scope. And it's new in its requirements. It's new in its quality. How so, we might ask? Well, in the old covenant, the command was to love your neighbor as yourself. In the new covenant, the command is to love your neighbor as Christ has loved your neighbor. John 13, 34, we heard this earlier in the service. A new commandment I give to you, Jesus says. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And so the question that we might rightfully ask then at this point is, well, how did Jesus love? How did our Lord model love toward others while he was here on earth? And that really is a whole other sermon in and of itself. But suffice it to say that Jesus Christ was and is the fulfillment of all of the Scripture's commands to love. Let me give you just a few. Philippians 2.3 He did nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility considered others to be more significant than himself. Philippians 2.4 He looked not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Matthew 20.28 He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 13.14 He picked up the towel and water basin and washed his disciples' feet. Matthew chapter 14 He fed the hungry. Matthew 4.23, he visited the sick and healed all their diseases. John 11.35, he comforted the grieving and wept with those who wept. John chapter 4, he visited the oppressed, the outcast, and the poor. And most of all, at the very summit of all of these examples, we find Philippians 2.8, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That, friends, is love. And that is why John says, it really is such a new commandment. Because the bar has been raised. The standard has been elevated. And he says, look, Christ is our guide and Christ is our model. And with that, we are right back to verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Listen, if you say that you have been born of God, if you say that his spirit resides within you, then the practical evidence, the, the fruit of that changed heart will be that you seek to love others as Christ Jesus has loved you. And so with that logic in mind, John proceeds to drive this point home to the consciences of his readers. He drives the nail into the coffin a little bit further here. Look back, look back with me at verses 9 through 11. Having now clarified the nature of this commandment, John says, Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let me ask you all a question. How can you tell the difference between two people whose doctrine is identically orthodox, yet only one of them has a soul in a state of grace? Only one of them has a true saving relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? John seems to lay it down here for us rather plainly. He says that one of them will have a love for others, but the other will have a love only for themselves. John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you subscribe to the Southern Baptist faith and message. If you can recite all Ten Commandments. If you've memorized all the books of the Bible in order. No. What does he say? 
By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you love one another. Friends, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The Bible is emphatically clear that the way we are saved is by repenting of our sins and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. That is clear. However, the evidence that we have received this salvation, that we have been saved, is that you will love other people. You will love one another. Let me try to make this personal for us this morning by posing a general question to the room. Do you all here this morning love one another? Do you love those in the family of God? Do you love Jesus' brothers and sisters? Do you have an affection for one another, a desire to be together? Now look, when I say one another, and when I say brothers and sisters, these are not just vague, abstract terms. The phrase one another refers to real people with real names, real problems, and real sins. It includes the people you chose to sit next to this morning. It includes the people you intentionally chose not to sit next to this morning. To love God is to love his children. It would be foolish for me to look at you and say that I love you, while behind your back, I, I treated your children with contempt and despised them in my heart. Just as I cannot love you without loving your family, you cannot love God without loving his children. John says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Now notice that John does not issue this portion of his letter only to extroverts. He doesn't say, now look, if you're an introvert and you tend not to really enjoy being around people, if you're more of a dog person than a people person, if you're kind of an Enneagram 8, then this portion of the Bible doesn't apply to you. You're off the hook. No, of course not. He doesn't say that. Why not? Well, because this is a spiritual birthmark that will be present in the lives of all of God's people. Now, of course, depending upon your disposition, the way that you are made, the way God has wired you, your specific personality, this may take on different forms, but don't be deceived, brothers. This must take on some form. The person in our church that expresses this love by writing notes of encouragement or dropping off a meal to those in need is in no less way following in the footsteps of Jesus than the person who uses their gifts and expresses this love through teaching Sunday school or volunteering during weeks of high energy like vacation Bible school. We are all members of one body, serving one Lord, the man Jesus Christ. That brings us to the third and final birthmark of the believer that I want us to deal with just very briefly in verses 12 through 14. And admittedly, this is one which approaches the whole matter from an entirely different angle altogether. However, it's one that is no less needful for us in our Christian life, and that is the mark of comfort in Jesus' grace. Comfort in Jesus' grace. In light of all that we have just said, John says that the true believer is not only marked by obedience to Jesus' commands, love for Jesus' brothers, but in the midst of all of this, they are preserved in the comfort of Jesus' grace. And so in these final three verses of this passage, John sort of calls a timeout in order to take an excursion of sorts from everything that he has just said. These three verses, they really serve as a parenthesis in between two major sections of this letter. So as we look at these three verses, 12 through 14, we get the sense that John sort of pulls the car over on the side of the road, puts it in park, and turns around and looks at the kids to say a few words to them in the back seat. He seems to acknowledge that what he has just been saying has admittedly been some rather difficult teaching. He seems aware that it would be impossible for us who have the Spirit in our hearts to read these commands and exhortations and not think to ourselves, well, Jesus, I cannot say that I obey God's commandments perfectly. I can't say that I always love my brothers and sisters perfectly and don't ever harbor any feelings of contempt or anger or bitterness or jealousy or envy toward them ever. 
And so if John is saying that all of this is necessary for the believer, then is he implying here that I am not truly saved if this is the case? That I do not truly know God and have a relationship with him? And so aware that this might be the thought that has crept into their minds, John includes this detour in his letter really to assure them of their salvation. To say to them, in effect, in effect, look, I am not writing to you because I doubt your salvation. In fact, it's rather quite the opposite. I am writing to you because I am actually convinced that you have been saved. I believe that your sins have been forgiven. In other words, it's important for us to remember that John's purpose in writing this letter is not to sow seeds of doubt among the true church, but rather to explain the condition of all those who have left and wandered off from the true church. In verse 19 of the same chapter, you'll see John make reference to the same group of people that he has in mind whenever he issues these warnings about hypocritical faith, like he's doing here. He says in chapter 2, verse 19, they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, he says. So in essence, John is saying here, my concern is not about your claims of salvation, but about the claims of those whose very lives contradict the very gospel that they profess. And so he writes in these verses to comfort those who would be holding in reading this letter, to remind them about the grace that they have received from our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, back to our text. Much debate, you might know, has been had here regarding the specific groups John seems to designate his exhortations and appeals to in these verses. And the question seems to revolve around whether or not these three categories that we see here, fathers, young men, and children, are referring to those who are physically and literally fathers, young men, and children, or whether this is merely figurative language John is using here to highlight the different stages of spiritual maturity among true believers in the church. Now, just to kind of show you my cards, I am inclined to believe that what John is doing here is the latter. That he is really speaking about the stages of spiritual growth, the progression of spiritual maturity. And with each stage in our sanctification, we see in this text that there are specific things that we need to be reminded of by way of encouragement in each particular season of our Christian life. And, and why does he... Repeat this list twice, you might ask. Well, why does any parent repeat themselves? Because children are prone to forget. They need to be reminded far more often than they need to be instructed. And so that's exactly what John does here. However, in the interest of our time this morning and for our purposes that I want us to accomplish, the point that I want to emphasize as we close is that no matter where you are in your spiritual walk with Christ, no matter where you are in the continuum of your sanctification, these words of affirmation from the Apostle John are true of you this morning if you are in Christ. While they might have a unique significance for believers who are in a specific season, they are in a general sense true of all believers, no matter what season you are in. And we know this because the word he uses there in verse 12 for little children is this word technia, which really just means born ones, those who have been born. And in a real sense, we are all here children in some sense. And so he is saying that if you are in Christ, then what I'm about to say is true of you. So he says, if you are in Christ, then verse 12, your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Verse 13, you know him who is from the beginning. If you are in Christ, you have overcome the evil one. You know the Father. And then finally, verse 14, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. And so as we consider these marks and these tests that John has been putting forth and applying to us, he pauses here and says, now look, before we go any further, before we get back on the road and continue to examine ourselves in light of God's word, it's important for you to remember the starting point to all that we've been saying. You need to know some foundational truths about your identity in Jesus Christ. Your sins have been forgiven. You've overcome the evil one. You really do know him who is from the beginning. 
Listen, friends, I'll remind you this morning that God's love inspires our action, but your action does not inspire God's love. God is pleased with the obedience of one man, and that one man has a name, and his name is Jesus. You will never be able to obey your way into heaven. You will never be able to love your way into the kingdom. In fact, it is only because of the perfect obedience and the perfect love of one man, Jesus Christ, that John can even write to us this morning and say, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And so if you are in Christ this morning, then I trust that you bear these three marks upon your soul, that you really are walking in obedience to Jesus' commandments, that you really do have a love in your heart for the brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and that most of all, I trust you find comfort in his grace when daily you fail and fall short in all of these things. If you're not in Christ this morning, then let me just relieve you of a lifetime of endless heartache and toil by telling you this. God does not want you to busy yourself your entire life with trying to keep all of his commandments until you first kept his greatest commandment to repent of your sins and to believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord. You cannot grow up in Christ until you've been born in Christ. Regeneration always comes before sanctification. God will not be pleased with the aroma of a dead soul. And so if you want to know this morning, the Bible says, that your sins have been forgiven, if you want to know that you have come to know him, it starts with bowing your knee to Christ and trusting in him as your Lord. I write these things to you, John says, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. If you would pray with me as we close.